0: 100 years before the Protestant Reformation, so we're in the early 1400s, there lived a Czech priest named Jan Hus. And like Luther would be the next century, Hus was concerned with the luxury and corruption, greed and avariciousness present in the medieval Catholic Church, even while the ordinary people lived in poverty. Particularly, he opposed the sale of indulgences, which were promises by the church that you could have your sins forgiven if you paid a certain sum of money. In fact, you could even get Grandma June in purgatory's sins forgiven if you paid a certain sum. It was a remarkable fundraising tactic. By the way, after the service, we have some sheets of paper that you can per- Just kidding. He began writing, as he was reading the writings of another reformer, John Wycliffe, and he began writing against these abuses. And he also began preaching in the local vernacular so that people could understand the Word of God rather than in the Latin, which the Catholic Mass required. And above that, he also argued that Scripture was of higher authority than even the Pope. All of this was understandably infuriating to the church hierarchy. We saw in chapter 3 that those who love darkness hate the light and don't come into the light lest their wicked deeds are exposed. But Huss was again preaching the word of God and people were responding to the word of God in faith and the Roman Catholic Church was losing influence in Bohemia, modern day Czech Republic. And so naturally something had to be done. And so Huss was invited to come and explain his views at this ongoing council of Constance. And in an effort to entice him to come to the council, uh, King Sigismund promised him safe passage to the council and that no harm would come to him while at the council. Like Luther, Huss was not intending to divide the church, but rather he was interested in calling her to repent, to return to the word of God, and to reform according to that word. And so he eagerly attended the council to explain his views, trusting the word he had received that he would have safe passage. He would, however, never return home to Bohemia. Upon arriving, he was arrested and tried as a heretic. And to be fair, they did give him the opportunity to recant, which he refused, and then they burned him at the stake and spread his ashes into the Rhine River so that no one could ever bury him. The point is this. The consequences can be disastrous when a person places their trust in the word of an untrustworthy source. Or in other words, bad things happen when you trust the word of those who cannot be trusted. Certainly you've seen this in your own life, regretting placing your trust in others. But perhaps you have also been the one who violated the trust of another when you broke your own word. Either way, when this happens, it can make us and others wary of trusting. But what if, what if there was someone that you could always trust? What if his word was the very bedrock of all truth and goodness? Well, in our text today, we'll consider the story of a man who encounters Jesus and begins to trust him in greater and greater ways. But unlike Jan Hus, this man's faith results in far more good as a result of trusting this word than he could have ever imagined. So pick up with me in chapter 4, verse 43, and we'll read through the first part of 50. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and he asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Jesus said to him, unless you all see signs and wonders, you all will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, this morning we come to you and we ask that you would humble us before your holy and precious word. Lord, we pray that you would grant our hearts ears to hear and eyes to receive all that you would teach us today. We pray that we would leave today further enlightened to your truth with a greater knowledge of who you are and that we would know you better. We pray that we would glorify you not just with our tongue but with our actions as a result of focusing on you and your word. Help us to trust that word this morning, and help me to preach that word by your Spirit. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, our first point this morning is a promise which demands a response, or rather a promise offered. Uh, You recall we left last week, and Jesus had spent an extra two days with the Samaritans those people who had previously uh, rejected God, whose ancestors had despised his covenant and so turned their back on God, and they were living in darkness and sin. But Jesus was merciful. He stayed, and he taught them about himself for two whole days. And they came to faith in him in droves, in a way that wasn't happening even among his own people, the Jews. But then we see this little parenthetical comment here, and it says that Jesus mentioned the prophet has no honor in his own hometown. Well, in the other Gospels, he'll say something similar, and he's referring to Nazareth, where he was raised, and it's because when Jesus goes to Nazareth, he is rejected in Nazareth. But here I think he's more broadly applying the word, which can also be translated as homeland, and I think he's applying that to Galilee why do I think that? Because, well, he's not in Nazareth. And so while we'll see a bit of enthusiasm for Jesus in Galilee, and even in Judea, uh, we remember what he said in chapter 2, right? That many believed in him because of the signs that he was performing in Jerusalem. And yet, Jesus did not entrust himself to those people because he knew what was in every person. It was a surface level faith. It was a spurious faith. It was a faith that was interested in the signs and not the sign giver. And so we see here in verse 45 hints of that same spurious faith. How do we see that? When he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. Why? Having seen or even because they saw all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast for they too had been at the feast. Repeatedly we see in the Gospels that those who see him perform signs express some kind of faith. But when he begins to explain the spiritual significance of those signs and what it means to follow him, they lose interest and fall away. And so here he comes and he's entering into Cana of Galilee. Remember this is the place where he turned water into wine. And he's welcomed by a crowd here. But in the back of our mind we recognize that this crowd is gathered for the same reason that people see magicians perform in Vegas. They're eager for a show, to see something supernatural. They want to be amazed. And it is here in Cana that we are introduced to a very desperate nobleman or official. It says that he received news that Jesus had come up from Judea, and because his son was ill and at the point of death, he comes up to see him. Now, I want you to just consider this guy for a moment in his own background. Uh, Jesus, at this point, is wildly popular. He's already eclipsed John the Baptist. And he draws a crowd wherever he goes in Jewish lands. It's safe to assume that this man who lives in Capernaum would have been aware of this famous Jewish prophet named Jesus for quite a while. Almost certainly he had heard stories about his healings or his exorcisms or the miracles that he was performing. It is even likely that this man believed those stories that he was hearing. But it was not until this fateful day that the man comes to see Jesus for himself. Why? Well, I think it's because he did not need Jesus until this day. Or rather, he did not think he needed Jesus until this day. But now that his son is ill, he is desperate. Perhaps he has exhausted the wisdom of all of his physicians, and the boy is at the point of death, and they've in their hands, and they said, there's nothing left that we can do for him. And so the boy is at the point of death lying on the bed, all of the color drained from his cheeks and the man has one last desperate option to pursue in hopes of saving his son. You see, the principle is this, that you don't go to a doctor unless you're sick. I've lived in this area for four years and I'm a little embarrassed to say I still don't have a PCP. (laughs) I didn't even try to get one until I... Uh, sprained my finger, and then I found out no one was taking new patients. (laughs) But the reality is, I'm probably not going to get a PCP until I get desperately ill, and then I'll be trying to track down a doctor while ill. Well, this is true spiritually as well. You see, a person cannot come to Christ except on his knees. Yes, there are many spectators there that day, eager to see a sign, but they're not the ones who follow him in faith. You see, to truly embrace Christ, one has to recognize a certain level of need for Christ. And like most Americans, like us, this was a well to do man. This is a person who is accustomed to meeting his own needs and even meeting his own desires. It's why Jesus says it's easier for a camel to enter into the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Which, by the way, he doesn't say it's impossible. He says it's very difficult. Because the rich man is accustomed to self-sufficiency, pulling himself up by his bootstraps. And that's antithetical to the gospel of grace, which says that you cannot pull yourself up by your heavenly bootstraps, but that you are completely in need of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so this man has led his entire life ignorant of his need for God until God was kind enough to allow his son to fall desperately ill. Yes, the kindness of God in allowing his son to get to the point of death. Listen, you may not be aware of your need for God, but that does not mean you don't need him. The scriptures are clear that we all stand condemned in our sins and we face an eternity far worse than this illness here. Your sin has separated you from a holy God and fellowship from your Creator and you have offended Him by rebelling against His good design and violating His law. And so it is that you are actually more needy than you could possibly imagine and what you are needy for is the forgiveness of your Heavenly Father which Christ died to provide you. It's my prayer this morning that if you do not recognize this need, that God would do for you what he did for this man and reveal to you your desperation, your spiritual desolation, so that you might turn to Christ in faith and receive his total forgiveness. And so this desperate man may not have figured Jesus out. He may not totally understand what he's offering him, but he's at least hopeful this guy can heal my son. And so he begs Jesus. He says, come down and heal my son. And then as Jesus' is wont to do, he provides a surprising rebuke to this honest and humble request. He turns to the man and he says something that I think is in one part a challenge to this man's faith, but I actually think it's primarily directed at the Galileans who are watching, eager to see a sign. What does he say? Verse 48. Unless you all, it's plural, see signs and wonders, you all will not believe. You see, uh, down south we're more advanced with our English, and we use an anathematized word "y'all," which I wouldn't dare use here from the pulpit. But that's what Jesus is saying here: unless y'all see signs and wonders, y'all will not believe. You see, the the crowd here is gathered; they're excited for a sign. But as we pointed out, Jesus is not interested in the the faith that's dependent upon signs. These people are obsessed with the miraculous to the expense of the one who performs the signs. The Son of God stands there before him and they're looking for little tricks. No, Jesus values the faith which hears the word of God and trusts it. Just think about all of those Samaritans that we looked at the past two weeks. They came to him because of the testimony of that woman. Look back at verse 41 with me. Let's let's consider why did these Samaritans believe? Verse 41, and many more believed because of his signs? No, because of his word. And they said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we've heard ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Jesus gave his word, and his word is sufficient for engendering faith. It is a sufficient ground for belief. Well, let's return to this desperate man who receives the rebuke. He doesn't argue with Jesus. He doesn't demand that Jesus prove himself before he believes in him. He simply presses his request once more. He possesses a faith which says, this man can at least heal my son. And so he says, please, Lord, come down and heal my son. He doesn't give up after the first prayer. I wonder in in here, if we're being honest, when we're praying about something important, how often do we just give up after our first request isn't granted in the way that we might like? What if God is testing just how much we value our prayer request when he doesn't answer it immediately? Are you aware that Augustine, one of the most prominent theologians in the church... That his mother prayed for him, not 10, not 20, not 30, but 40 years. She prayed for him to come to faith. And it wasn't until he was 40 that he did. This man prays again, come down before my child dies. And so Jesus turns to this desperate man, humbled by his circumstances, bowing the knee to the King of Kings. And he doesn't say, oh, so now you're coming to me when things aren't going well. But when things were going well, you couldn't couldn't care less about God. No, that's not what he says. He looks at the man and he has compassion on him. And what does he say? He says, go, your son will live. He grants his request, but it's not exactly in the way that the man requested. The man requested that Jesus come down with him as a kind of crutch To his faith. But Jesus is requiring a step of faith on the part of this man. He refuses to go. The command is go, and the implication is that this man must go in total faith that Jesus has done as he promised. And so it is that we see the nature of faith at work. God made a promise to this man. And sure, this man has heard wonderful things about Jesus. This man sees this huge crowd here gathered. He has good reasons for believing Jesus, but he has verified none of it for himself. He hasn't seen Jesus perform a single miracle. If he's looking for evidence, he's not getting any. All that he has to go on in this moment is the word of Christ. Go, your son will live. Well, so it is with everyone who would become a follower of Jesus Christ. Sure, there are great reasons for believing. There are 2,000 years of public Christian witness to Christ, the blood of the martyrs who followed him to their graves. There are... uh, countless examples of the way that he's impacted our lives. There are wonderful, intellectually compelling arguments for the resurrection and other miracles. There are profound philosophical arguments for the existence of God. There are wonderful apologetics out there to build you up in your faith. There is the example of the incredible selfless love a person can find in the church and the unity which the Holy Spirit can produce in people who have nothing in common from a worldly perspective. But at the end of the day, there is no getting around the leap of faith. The best that all of these evidences can do for you is to convince you that Christianity is plausible. But if you are ever to become a Christian, it will be because Jesus Christ spoke through his word, you listened, and you chose to believe by the grace of God. Listen this morning, I pray that if he hasn't already, God would reveal your desperation to you. That you are dead in your sins, and the penalty for your sin is eternal death. That you are not neutral, that you are not basically good, but that you are under God's judgment. And yet God sent Christ to die for his enemies. That's for us. And he rose again from the grave, and he ascended into heaven, and he rules over all things. And here is the promise of God to you. Here is the word of Christ. That if you believe in him, he will totally forgive you of all that you have done. He will make you righteous. He will make you a child of God and an heir to his everlasting kingdom. And such is the nature of faith that it takes the word of God as sufficient ground for belief. This is why Paul can say this remarkable thing in Romans 1.16. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, the good news. Why? He says, Because the gospel, the word of God, is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. It's the gospel that changes hearts and minds. It's the gospel that draws people to Christ. When Jesus speaks, he does so with authority, and his words are the very power of God. And so this man here, before Jesus, having requested that he'll heal his son, Jesus has told him, go, your son will live, and he's faced with a decision. Will he accept the word of Christ in faith? Or has he not seen enough to believe? Well, tune in next week to find out. Let's pray. (laughs) Cliffhanger. Let's pick up in the second half of verse 50 to see the realization of the promise. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that it was the hour that Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed, and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. So the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went on his way. He heard the word of God, and he believed it. And so it is at this point, I would say, the man is acting in faith, but it's not yet a saving faith. Here's what I mean. He's trusting that Jesus has healed his son, but he's not yet trusting in Jesus as God. That'll come uh, in just a few verses. But I want you to note this, the remarkable step of faith that this is. He doesn't go looking for other physicians. He doesn't wallow around complaining because Jesus didn't grant his request exactly how he wanted. His faith leads to action. His faith is revealed as a real faith because he gets up and returns home in accordance with what Jesus said. Real faith shows itself in how it changes the trajectory of your life. And so he is walking home. He's trusting in the word which Christ has given him, but he hasn't yet had his faith validated. The promise has not yet been realized to him, though he is trusting in the promise. And he's not yet trusting in Christ as Savior, Lord, and God. And that's when we get to verse 51. So he's walking down the road, he's going down, and his servants come up to meet him. And this could be good news or it could be bad news. But they told him that his son was recovering. Now, if we stopped just there, your son is recovering. There are a lot of ways to rationalize the son's recovery. Oh, well, I guess that last treatment finally worked. Oh, well, I guess he finally got past the worst of it and he's now recovering. I know it looked like he was dying, but, but, you know, maybe his body had more fight left in him than we thought. And so the father asks a follow-up question. He says, when did he start to get better? And they said the seventh hour, which is roughly one o'clock the father knew that this was the hour Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And so not only has the son, uh, not only has his faith been validated, but it's been explicitly validated because it was the precise hour that Jesus said your son will live, that the son's fever left him and he began to get better. And so this news that he has validates the faith that he placed in Jesus' word the sign, the miraculous healing of the Son from death to life happened in response to the faith. And I want you to just note the order of that, right? He places his faith in Jesus without complete evidence, right? That's that's faith, what does Hebrews 11.1 says? Faith is the confidence of things hoped for, the assurance of things not seen, He places his faith in him. And then later on, his faith is validated by this miraculous sign. His faith is assured after his decision to believe. And so I just want to encourage you, if you uh, are not yet believing, believe that you may see. (coughs) Believe that you might understand and not pour water on yourself. It's not see that you might believe, but believe that you might see. The promise was realized in his son. Now, I want you to notice that we've seen one miracle, but there's an even greater miracle in the second half of verse 53. In response to this, it says this, that he, the father himself, believed in all his household. We finally move to the last stage of faith. He once trusted that Jesus could heal his son. He then trusted that Jesus had healed his son. He's now trusting that Jesus is his God. And so let me ask you this. What is the greater miracle? That the son was moved from physical death to life? Or that this entire family was moved from spiritual death to everlasting life and fellowship with their Creator? I put forward that the second was the greater sign. The the one sign, the physical sign, pointed to the greater spiritual sign. It says that he and his whole household believed. Now, as Baptists, I just want to point out, we are quick to point out, that it says he and his household believed. It doesn't say that the father believed on behalf of his household. There's entire branches of Christianity which posit that a father (laughs) can believe, or a father and mother can believe in the place of their kids, and so they are baptized as infants. And we, as Baptists, say that's really, really confusing. It's not a good idea. In some sense, it inoculates children from the, the need to repent and believe for themselves. And we'll see this repeated throughout Acts. He believed, and so did his whole household what a wonderful truth that is and by the way dads i just this is just a side note here fathers you have an outsized role in the spiritual development of your family god has given you to take the initiative in leading your family spiritually and leading your children We see here that the father comes to faith and as a result of the father coming to faith, his whole family follows him in that faith. I'm not dismissing mom, all right? I gave the example of Monica, Augustine's mother, who prayed for him for 40 years. His dad was a lousy pagan, never became a Christian. But dad's... God has given you the opportunity to pour into your kids. And I I don't mean to passively sit in the pew quarterly. I mean to pour into your kids, to read the word with them, to talk about the word with them, to serve with them, serve alongside them at the church, to to model repentance and faith to them. When you sin, you you admit it. When they sin, you call them to repentance. You are the one to take the initiative and so lead your family to the one who can save them. And by the way, dads, the best way to reach dads is with dads. So let's team up and let's see some other folks in Medfield and the surrounding regions. Let's invite them to come and know their Savior. Well, in verse 54, we wrap up our text. It says this was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Or in other words, this is the second sign that Jesus did in Galilee. The first one was in Cana, the same town. It begins. The section begins in Cana, and it ends in Cana. It begins at a wedding, turning water to wine. It ends in Cana and in Capernaum, where he brings a son from death to life. And here we saw that Jesus performs a miracle in bringing life to this young boy, but he performs the sign... I just want you to remember this one more time. He performs the sign for someone who believed his word and then had his word, his faith, rather, validated through the sign. But who didn't receive the sign? The crowd in Cana. The crowd of Galileans that had gathered to witness the miraculous because they were more interested in signs than the sign giver. Jesus performed the sign at the distance 25 miles away in Capernaum as a reward to the faith of this man. What is greater, the one who gives the sign or the sign itself? I'd argue it's the one who commands reality. And it's also a helpful reminder to us that we cannot force God to do anything. These people gathered, expecting that they could get Jesus to perform. Herod, upon the crucifixion, was eager to see Jesus. He wanted him to perform a sign. But Jesus was silent before his accusers. I'll close with an application. Brothers and sisters, those of you in Christ, each one of us lives metaphorically speaking, on the road between Cana and Capernaum. We've chosen to take Christ at his word... We have good reasons for doing so. We celebrate his death and his resurrection. We relish the promises that he has made to us, his people, that he'll never leave nor forsake us, that we are his, that no one can snatch us from his hands, and that though we are sinners and though we would rightly be condemned, that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus that though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him, nor for any earthly power. Dear friends, we live in between the sacrifice which bought our redemption and the second coming in which God will vindicate his people and evil will be eradicated. And so, like the man walking from Cana to Capernaum, we walk trusting in the promises before they have been fully realized for us. But until that day when our faith is turned to sight, we rest in the promises of God. And we trust in the promises of God because we know he will validate our faith. He will vindicate his people and he will fulfill his promises to us. And on this road, we are called to obey Christ. Always. Even when it's costly. Even when there is an entire month Dedicated to prideful rebellion against God. And your corporation wants you to bow the knee to the rainbow idol. We have faith in the one who can raise the dead. That if I refuse to bow the knee, if I am willing to speak the truth in love, in love, that God can take care of me, that God is at work for my good. That even if I suffer for doing good and speaking the truth in love, God is in control of all things. I've trusted in his word. I trust in his promises that have yet to be fulfilled. And that's good enough for me. Jan Hus shouldn't have trusted in the word of that king who promised him safe passage. But you see, even after he did trust that word, Haas still could have chosen to save his own skin. It would have been really easy. All he had to do was say, yes, I recant. The Bible is silly. The Pope is the best. And let's keep fleecing those peasants with indulgences. It's a great way to raise cash. But he didn't. He stood on the word of God against an entire medieval apparatus which was hopelessly corrupt. And he stood on the word of God all the way to his death. Just, just think about that for a moment, how remarkable that is. To stand before your accusers, who literally hold your life in their hands, and to fear God more than you fear man. All he had to do was say, I recant. What would compel a person to stand for truth like that? Well, he had learned throughout his life to trust the word of Christ. And he knew that the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. These kingdoms are temporary. His life was hidden with Christ in God. And so it was, a hundred years later, at the height of the Protestant Reformation, that Luther, who also opposed many of the same things which Huss did, could, and who himself also suffered greatly for the cause of Christ, he could say this, and I quote, he says "As I opposed indulgences and all the papists, but never with force. I simply taught, preached, And wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. This is a good part. And while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my friends Phillips and Amsdorf, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses upon it. I did nothing, the word did everything. Dear friends, the word does everything, the word is trustworthy. The gospel needs no gallows, the church needs no stakes, because Christ has built his church upon the truth of his word, and his word is always trustworthy, and his promises are always sure to be realized. And you can put your hope and your trust in the word of Jesus Christ.